section of Scripture, Genesis chapter 7, I want to read a few passages from the New Testament which will help us to understand it better. You can turn with me if you want or you can just listen. I'm going to begin by reading Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 41. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10 to 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And then, of course, there's the passage that we read earlier in the service, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, which I won't read again, but it, uh, I'll just read a, a brief excerpt. That by means of water, the world that then existed, that is, in Noah's day, was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If we see how the New Testament comments on 
this story of the flood, we understand that the flood narrative is a type of things to come. A type refers to typology. In the book Kingdom Through Covenant, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam give us a good definition of typology. They define typology in the Old Testament as this. Recurring patterns pointing forward to and culminating ultimately in Christ. So in typology, there's a type and there's an antitype. The type is the original thing and the antitype is the thing that it points to. The type is a recurring pattern pointing forward to and culminating ultimately in Christ. And the antitype is Christ who fulfills the type. In other words, there's a correspondence between type and antitype. You don't necessarily need to know those words, but you definitely need to understand that concept in order to understand the Old Testament properly. Because not only is the, pro- is the Old Testament full of promises about the coming Messiah, explicit ones like Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but the Old Testament is also full of types, recurring patterns, pointing forward to and culminating ultimately in Christ. Things like the priesthood, priests standing, interceding for the people before God is a recurring pattern that points forward to and culminates ultimately in Christ. The sacrifices, those slain as substitutes for sinners, recurring patterns pointing forward to and culminating ultimately in Christ. You can see, those are just a couple examples, but you can see that the Old Testament is chock full of typology, recurring patterns that point forward to and ultimately culminate in Christ. As those things that I just mentioned are types, so in the passage before us today, what we see is that the ark is a type of Christ. Christ is the antitype. The ark is the type. There is a correspondence between the story of Noah's ark and the salvation that Christ brings. That's how the New Testament uniformly understands this section of Scripture. So let's expand on that. First of all, just like in the days of Noah, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. In those days, we talked about this last week, there was such a prevalence of wickedness on the earth that God decided to kill and send straight to hell everybody but Noah and his family. We talked last week about how God's judgment is just. That God poured out His wrath. We read in the section that we're looking at specifically tonight, Not the promise of it, but the fulfillment of that promise. The waters came pouring down from the heavens. We read that the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And that wrath which had been promised eventually came. What we... See, when we look at this narrative, though we read it one chapter after the next, you could easily, easily 
sit down and read the whole flood narrative from Genesis 6 all the way until the ark lands and you can read the aftermath about Noah's descendants all the way to the end of chapter 10. You could easily do that on a morning before you go to work. But this was year, likely years and years, possibly even a century unfolding. It's unclear exactly when God told Noah to build the ark. Some scholars have guessed and hypothesized this or that, but it's not conclusive in the text. The last time that Noah's age was mentioned was in chapter 5 and verse 32, where it says, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the next time we see Noah's age was when he was 600 years old, the flood came. Some have postulated that there's a connection between those numbers. And it was when Noah was 500 that God promised that he was going to send the flood. That's not a good and necessary consequence. So it's possible, but we don't necessarily need to land there. But when we look at the dimensions of the ark, and then we think about the tools and the materials that Noah would have had at his disposal. It's not like God announced it a week prior or a month prior or even a year prior. So we're talking years and years and years. God told Noah years in advance that the wrath was coming, that the flood was coming. And as we read over in 1 Peter, Noah is a herald of righteousness. Noah was a herald of righteousness, which means when God told Noah that the flood was coming, Noah didn't keep it to himself. Noah was a preacher. We don't know exactly what Noah said. There's nothing recorded for us in the scripture about exactly what Noah said, but we, we know that he heralded righteousness. He must have heralded God's righteousness. That God is holy. That God's demands upon Adam and Eve in the garden were just and right and good. That God's law is good. That God's way is good. That God Himself is good. God is righteous. He must have started there. And He must have preached then God's law and contrasted the righteousness of God's law with the unrighteousness of men. He must have said, this is what righteousness is and this is what you are. You are a sinner. You are sinners. You have transgressed God's law. You have failed to conform to God's law. As have I. We read in this passage that Noah was a righteous man, but we talked about last week. That doesn't mean that he was without any sin. It means on a relative scale, he was righteous compared to other people. It means that that God had given him the new birth and brought him to faith in the Messiah. And that God walked with him by faith as he walked with Enoch by faith so many years prior. But Noah was a sinner too, so he must have preached, we are sinners. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. He must have preached these things. He must have preached that that judgment is coming. That it's not just in an abstract way we deserve judgment, but real, specific, concrete judgment is coming. God has told me there will be a flood on the earth and He will wipe out all of us. All of us who remain outside of this ark that I'm building. He must have preached 
about the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. For this was part and parcel of true religion ever since Genesis chapter 3 and 15, faith in the coming Messiah. So as one who knew that the Messiah was coming, Noah must have understood that this deliverance in the ark was a temporary deliverance. But there is one coming. There is one coming, a descendant of Eve, who will bring a final and a full deliverance, crushing that serpent's head once and for all. He must have preached about that. He must have preached about the substitutionary sacrifices that God has, had instituted. We saw back in the story of Cain and Abel that Cain's sacrifice was rejected because he approached God on his own terms instead of bringing the offering that God had prescribed. We're not to think that only later in the biblical narrative did God care about being worshipped properly. Just as God did not allow Nadab and Abihu to offer, offer unauthorized fire, just as God struck down Uzzah when he reached out his hand to steady the ark of God, so God, right from the beginning, has been particular about how he is to be worshipped. It's his right, it's his prerogative. And so we are to worship him not according to what we think he might like, but according to what he has prescribed. And so part of what was going on in the Cain and Abel narrative is that Abel brought a substitutionary sacrifice and Cain did not. We see that argument further strengthened in this section where God tells him to bring extra clean animals. Think about that. That means that this is not the first time that a person learned about the distinction between clean animals and unclean animals. God assumes that Noah knows what clean animals are and what unclean animals are. It's assumed that there has been this distinction uh, from an earlier time to Noah. And we understand by good and necessary consequence that it's actually right from Adam and Eve's fall into sin. When God slayed animals to clothe them, uh, there was a, uh, a substitute which died in order to clothe them. Cain brings fruit. Abel brings a substitutionary sacrifice. Now Noah is instructed to de- distinguish and to delineate between clean animals and unclean animals to bring extra clean animals on board. Why? To sacrifice when he gets out of the ark. And we see that that's exactly what he does. He gets out of the ark and offers sacrifices. So Noah, along with all of these other things, would have preached... God has appointed sacrifices to die in the place of sinners. And again, he would have known that these things can't take away sin. As we read it later, much later in biblical revelation in Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But that's not stated in the book of Hebrews as if it's new revelation. It's stated as if everybody should have known that by the very fact that these things are offered over and over. See, the the logic in Hebrews is that if it really could have dealt with sin, they just would have been offered one time. But since they were offered over and over, it's obvious that they weren't effective. If you have to do something over and over, obviously the first time you did it wasn't just the once and for all thing that accomplished what you were trying to do. That's the logic in Hebrews. So Hebrews doesn't present that as new information. It presents it as information that any thinking person would have deduced from the Old Testament system. So again, just as Noah would have preached the ark as a temporary salvation, a temporary deliverance, understanding that there's a Messiah who will come and crush Satan, 
and usher in a full and final deliverance, so, so Noah would have preached these substitutionary sacrifices as essentially the staying of God's temporal wrath until the final and full sacrifice would come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are the sorts of things that Noah would have preached. That there is a God who offers deliverance. That there is a God who offers salvation. And that salvation is not here in its full and final form yet. But God will deliver us temporally now through the sacrificial system and through this ark that I'm building. The wrath of God is coming. And all of us must make use of the provision of God's grace or we will perish. This is what Noah would have preached. But Matthew 24 (coughs) teaches us that everyone basically ignored him. As it was in the days of Noah, we read, as it was in the days of Noah, in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, listen to that, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. How concerned were they the day before the flood? They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Until the day that Noah entered the ark, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They ignored Noah's message. Noah was a herald of righteousness, preaching these things, testifying of true religion. And right up until the day that he entered the ark, people did not listen. Noah would have been going about his business, building this ark, cutting down trees, using tools to shape and fashion them, assembling them together. And this would have looked like crazy work from a natural perspective. It's likely that he was mocked and ridiculed by the people around him. They didn't understand his priorities because they didn't believe his message. They didn't understand why Noah was doing the things that he was doing because they didn't think that Noah understood rightly what was going to happen and what the best way to spend a life was. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. God has appointed the church to be a herald of righteousness. We are to preach the same things as Noah preached, and yet in a way that is commensurate with our stage of redemptive revelation. We are to preach that same righteousness of God, that He is of purer eyes than to behold evil, that God will not tolerate a little bit of wickedness in your life, a little bit of wickedness in your heart, a little bit of wickedness on your lips, a little bit of wickedness on your hands. No! God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. That God is absolutely, utterly perfect in righteousness and in holiness. He will not compromise His holiness one whit. He will, as Exodus tells us, by no means clear the guilty. And so we sinners have a problem because this is God's law and this is where we are. All of us. Just as Noah preached, you are sinners and I'm a sinner. 
So we today must preach to the unbelieving world, you are sinners, even as we ourselves acknowledge we are sinners. We read a section of God's law every time we gather for worship and we confess our sins to God lest we forget that we also are sinners. Lest we become haughty and lest we become proud having begun as if it was by grace and then continuing on as if we're keeping ourselves by our own works. Or let us always remember we are sinners. We need grace. Let us always rest ourselves only on God's grace. Who sees anything good in us? And even if there is something good in us, what do we have that we did not receive? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It's God who made us alive and not we ourselves. He made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And so we preach this righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. And we preach about the Messiah. Noah preached about a Messiah to come We preach about a Messiah who has come. Noah preached about a sacrifice, a substitute who would come. We preach about a substitute, a sacrifice who has come. You see, he was preaching about Christ Jesus, though he didn't know his name. We preach about Christ Jesus and we do know his name. But we have the same message. This provision of God, this gracious provision of one who will crush the serpent's head. This gracious provision of one who will die as a substitute for sinners. This gracious provision of one who will die in order that we might be adequately clothed. We preach this same message as Noah preached. And just as in Noah's day, people didn't listen to him. So often in our day, people don't listen to us either. Just as in Noah's day, people misunderstood his priorities because they didn't believe his message. In his day, it was, why are you going and building this boat? You don't need to do that. In our day, why are you going to church? Especially twice on a Sunday. Why? Why would you set aside one day in seven for worship? It's all a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's a crutch for weak people. We've moved past that now. We're enlightened. We, we believe in science. Not this kind of mythological, ethereal, abstract, fairy tale stuff. They don't understand why we would give money away, whether it be to the church or whether it be in generosity towards brothers and sisters in need. They don't understand why we would choose to live in a a smaller home in order to have our assets freed up to do other things. They don't understand why we would choose where we would live based on where we would worship instead of choosing where we would worship based on where we live. In other words, why would you drive to the other side of the island to go to church? Right? They don't understand these things because they don't believe our message. Why would you spend time with these people that are so unlike you? Why not spend time with people that are like yourself? Why would you spend time with people that have nothing to offer you? Why not spend time with people that, that, why not cultivate relationships that are mutually beneficial? You understand? Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it is now. People don't understand our priorities because they don't believe our message. 
And yet we must continue to herald this righteousness. We must continue to herald this righteousness. John Currid, who's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, writes in his commentary on Genesis that they've uncovered the remains of a Roman soldier who was posted at Pompeii near the base of Mount Vesuvius, which erupted in AD 79 and obliterated the city. They found this guy at his post in the archaeological remains. So Vesuvius is erupting and this Roman soldier just stays where he was posted. They found him, they found him with both his hands still on his weapon. He didn't even move. Just posted up. Ready to let whatever is going to happen around him happen. He's here to do his job. We need to be like that soldier. We have orders from a higher king. We need to post up like that regardless of what's going on around us. Regardless of what is happening in the world around us. We need to just stay posted up like that. We need to continue to herald this righteousness because again, the wrath of God is coming. Regardless of whether people believe it or not, the wrath of God is coming. And yet, mingled with this wrath was grace. We've already touched on this. But Noah didn't just know about God's wrath and remain in the dark with respect to God's grace. And neither do we only know about God's wrath and yet remain in the dark with respect to God's grace. Noah did not just herald God's wrath without heralding God's grace. And neither should we herald God's wrath without also heralding God's grace. Again, we got to herald the Messiah. The Messiah. One has come who has crushed the serpent's head. There is a hope according to His promise. We're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This has to be part of our message. This has to be part of our message. We're not preaching temporal salvation. We're not preaching that there's an ark that you can get in to live a few years longer. We're preaching a message of eternal salvation that the snake crusher has come. His name is Jesus. And that He's going to make all things new. And that we may live with Him forever in this new heavens and this new earth in which righteousness dwells. And again, we got to herald the sacrifice. Just as Noah heralded those animal sacrifices, which stayed God's temporal wrath and signified of a better sacrifice to come. So we got to herald that substitutionary sacrifice. As John the Baptist said when he pointed at Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we have to do the same thing. We need to point at Jesus, brothers and sisters, and tell people, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
We got to herald that sacrifice. We got to tell people, just as Noah pointed to the ark, we got to tell people that a flood is coming, a flood of God's wrath. Not water, but God's wrath. We got to tell people that there is an ark in which you may hide yourself. There is an ark of God's salvation. You may fly to the ark, hide yourself in it, take shelter in it, and when God's wrath pours down upon this world, it shall rain down upon the roof of that ark, and you will be dry and safe and warm within. And that ark is a person, Christ Jesus. What happened on the cross was that all of God's elect, all of the people whom God has chosen and predestined to save since before the foundation of the world, from points in time before the cross to points in time after the cross, all of those people, everyone who would eventually come to believe in Christ Jesus, were hidden inside Christ, as it were, as He hung upon the cross. We were there. And God's wrath poured down. But it didn't touch any of us. It landed upon the roof of the ark. Christ Jesus bore it for us. We need to have this message on our lips, just as Noah had that message on his lips in that day. Just as Noah was saved from the coming wrath by taking shelter in the ark, so we may be saved by taking shelter in the ark of our salvation, Christ Jesus. Good works won't help you on that last day. No doubt there were people of varying degrees of sinfulness outside the ark. No doubt there were people, some people who were more wicked than others. And on a relative scale, some people who were more righteous than others outside of the ark. But all that mattered on the day when the fountains of the deep burst forth, all that mattered when the windows of the heavens were open was whether you were in the ark or whether you were outside the ark. Your relative morality mattered nothing. And so it will be on that last day. When God's wrath is poured out upon this world, it won't matter whether you're a little bit more righteous or a little bit less righteous than the people around you. All that will matter is whether you are in the ark. Are you in Christ Jesus or are you not in Christ Jesus? Good works won't help you on the last day. You've got to get in the ark. The ark is not the church. Just because you're a church member, whether a member of any other church or even whether you're a member of this church, church membership will not save you. Being hidden in the ark is not the same thing as being a church member. If you're in Christ Jesus, you also ought to be a member of a church. But those two things are distinguishable. It's possible that you can deceive church leaders, that you can deceive the Christians in a particular church and get them to accept you in, put on a front, 
of Christianity, a veneer of morality and so on and so forth, a profession of faith, and be a church member but not be in the ark. The ark is not the church. The church is not the ark. The ark is Christ Jesus. So again on that last day, when the wrath of God is poured out upon this world, it won't matter whether you're in the church or outside the church. It will matter whether you're in Christ Jesus or outside of Christ Jesus. The ark is not a church leader. The ark is not the pope. The ark is no bishop. The ark is no apostle. The ark is no pastor. It doesn't matter what your connections are. It doesn't matter whether you listen to Ligonier Ministries and like R.C. Sproul. It doesn't matter whether you have a connection with this teacher or that teacher. It really doesn't matter. On that last day when the wrath of God pours down, you can't take shelter under John MacArthur. You can't take shelter under a church leader. You can't take shelter. Church leaders are not the ark. Good works are not the ark. The church is not the ark. Church leaders are not the ark. The ark is Christ Jesus. Just as Noah was saved from the coming wrath by taking shelter in the ark, so we may be saved by taking shelter in the ark of our salvation. And that ark is Christ. That ark is Christ. The ark that God has provided for our salvation from the wrath to come is Christ Jesus. You need to get in the ark. And if you are in the ark or not, that is the definitive factor with respect to what will happen to you when the wrath of God is poured out upon this world, whether you are in the ark or not. The wrath of God is coming. Christ will return with a sword in His mouth to judge the nations. The wrath of God is coming. In the meantime, let all of us who are in the ark continue to be heralds of righteousness, continue to testify to the outside world about the ark, And if any of us here tonight are not yet in the ark, if any of us here are not trusting in Christ Jesus, even tonight, would today be the day of salvation for you? Hide yourself in Christ Jesus. Let us all enter the ark. Let us all enter the ark.